Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 through 22. This is God's word. In the 600th year, 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and winter, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The Lord has brought judgment The judgment waters upon the entire world. All flesh that live on the ground have been destroyed by God. We did not discuss this in our previous sermon, but the flood was not a local flood. Meaning the judgment of God was not isolated to a specific region of the world and only that region. The judgment of God was upon all flesh that lived on the ground all over the world. There was not one solitary place in all of the world where God's judgment upon the corruption of all flesh was not executed. We we may not realize that each culture, and I do mean each culture, especially the, the most ancient of cultures, they have some type of flood story in their culture. There are some variations, of course, But their story of the flood, by and large, matches that that we find here in the scriptures. And that story has been passed on from generation to generation. And it is a a variant, if you will, of what is revealed to us here in the scriptures. Take, for example, the Chinese culture, the ancient Chinese culture. They have passed down a story of a man named Nua who along with seven others survived a great flood. It is in their ancient Chinese culture. It is believed that at the Tower of Babel, when the languages were confused, the peoples were dispersed, if you will. And they took with them, as they were dispersed from all over the world, they took with them this narrative or historical story of a worldwide flood and passed it on from generation to generation. The flood was a worldwide catastrophe. And through the flood, we saw last week the decreation 
and recreation of the earth. The waters prevailed over all the earth. Prevailed four times. The waters prevailed. They increased. They prevailed. The waters burst forth from the grounds. Pastor Isaiah showed me a video of a movie that came out some time ago about Noah. Russell Crowe played the lead actor in that movie. And he showed me the clip of something that I guess I was describing last week of waters bursting forth from the ground. And because he had seen the movie, he said, I could imagine what you were saying as it was told or shown in that movie taking place. Waters burst forth from the ground and waters fell like a flood from the heavens. And this continued 40 days and 40 nights until the entire earth was a sphere of water, just as it was when it was first created. The Lord God was reversing creation. And then the Lord God was reverting or recreating the world. Uh, We saw last week that the highest mountains were covered up to 20 feet. And now the Lord is receding the waters. The waters are regressing and coming down. After uh, months, six months, if you will, the Lord God caused a wind to blow over the waters and the waters began to recede. You do know that Noah was not in the boat 40 days and 40 nights. You do know that it rained, that waters rose 40 days and 40 nights. But Noah was in the, the ark, we will see, for over a year. The mountains began to emerge as Noah was in the ark. The lands began to dry up. And the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. We saw the biblical theology of decreation that pointed back to the initial creation. And then we saw the biblical theology of recreation that pointed forward to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Just as Noah was a new Adam, he was prophet. He knew and proclaimed God's word. He was a priest. We shall see that. And later in the sermon, he offered a sacrifice on behalf of himself and the entire world. And Noah was a king. The Lord God gave him and mankind authority over all of the earth. But ultimately, Noah was not the rest giver that we had been waiting for. Noah would save the physical lives of his family. But Noah would not be able to save their souls. Noah was a type of Christ. Noah was pointing forward toward A better Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the better prophet, the better priest, the better king who would save both the body and the soul of those who place their faith in him alone. And I do pray that you learned much last week about how to understand or see biblical theology throughout the scriptures. And, And let me say to you, we've been doing this the whole time. When you see types that are fulfilled later on in the New Testament, we are, we are doing biblical theology. And we are learning this, as we said last week, we are learning this from the Bible itself. The Bible itself teaches us how to do biblical theology. And now this morning, uh, with God's help, we will discuss two points found in the eighth chapter of the book of Genesis. I have just two points for you this morning. Number one, wait till I say go. Number one, wait till I say go. Verse 13 through 19. In the 600th year or 601st year, in the first month, 
the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the, of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping thing, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. It was the 601st year. That is the 601st year of Noah's life. Uh, the Septuagint, and you may have heard us say this word Septuagint time and time again. The Septuagint is the earliest uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. So the Greek translation or the Septuagint, it adds the 601st year of Noah's life. In the 601st year of Noah's life, that is. Lest we think that this is year 601 of creation. That makes sense? So in the 601st year of Noah's life. Noah was how old when God told him to aboard the ark? 600. It is now the 601st year of Noah's life. Noah has been on the ark for one year. It was the first month, the first day, which means that it is most likely a new year. That it is New Year's Day. And what a, a wonderful New Year's Day it must have been for Noah as he removes this, this covering from the ark and looks out upon the dry ground and sees that, yes, it is dry. Now, th this covering, it is not a covering of the entire ark. It is not like having a, a, a covering over your cars. But rather, it was a covering that, that was most likely made of skins that covered the, the window. Or possibly a small door in which Noah opened to release the birds to find life. It is reflecting of the covering that was over the ark. And there is another typology here of the ark and the covenant that we won't get into. But the ark is a type of a many, many different things. So Noah has removed this covering. And as he removes this covering, Noah doesn't just see mountaintops. Noah does, doesn't just see the hills. Noah, for the very first time in over a year, can now see the valley floor. It has been over a year since he has seen the ground. I don't know if any of you have ever been on long flights. The furthest I've flown was to New York City. And after being on a flight for almost six hours, sitting next to my large brother, Isaiah, and looking down the aisle and seeing my larger brother, Tony, uh, in their uncomfortable positions, Sitting in those places, in those small seats that are made for miniature people. I don't know why, how they make them that way, but you can't wait to get out of that box. You can't wait to touch the ground. You don't care how much smog is in the city that you are going into. Just get me out of this plane. As far as we know, 
We have no knowledge of how, as far as we know, Noah had no knowledge of how long he would be on this ark. God did not say it'll be a, an hour trip. God did not say you will uh, sit tight for you will be on this boat for over a year. As far as we know, Noah had no idea how long he would be on this ark. He and his family and the animals would be citizens, citizens of the ark. As far as they knew, for as long as God, as long as God desired. As far as we know, we are not giving information as to what it was like upon the ark. Meaning this, we are not giving given information about life on the ark. Are we? Not much is said about how Noah's wives fared with Noah's wife, a mother and daughter-in-laws. Not much is said about how three sons, or let me say it this way, how three brothers fared with one another aboard an ark for over a year. If you have brothers, maybe you understand. What it may have been like. Not much is said about seasickness. Not much is said about cleaning of animals and their waste. Not much is said about what Noah and his family ate. Not much is said about the sleeping patterns and what that was like for them. We can only imagine. But why is not much said about those details? Because those details, those details are not the point. They will be once again missing the forest through the trees. We know exactly what the Lord God intends for us to know because he has divinely revealed to us everything that is important for us for faith and obedience in his word. So to go into those different directions, they are fun. But they are not necessary. What is necessary is this. It has been over a year. That Noah has been on the ark with his family and this we can only imagine the anticipation and the anxiety of wanting to exit this ark. And also the joy that Noah experienced when he sends the dove out from the window and the dove returns with an olive branch. Can you imagine the joy? There is life out there. This will not, Lord willing, be our home. God then sends a wind upon the earth. The waters, they assuage, they, they return to their cavities in the earth, if you will. The waters begin to dry up, and for the first time, Noah can see dry ground. Not mountaintops, for no one can live on the mountaintop, right? But dry ground. And yet, shockingly, amazingly, when Noah sees the dry ground, he does not rush out of the ark and, and immediately kiss the muddy ground. You and I would do that. Or at least I would be tempted to do that. But Noah does just the opposite. We read that it was the first day of the first month. Noah looks out, sees the dry ground. But notice verse 14 of chapter 8. In the second month. On the 27th day of the month. The earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah. Go. Go out from the ark, you and your wife, 
and your sons and your son's wife with you. Noah sees the dry ground on the new year. On New Year's Day, Noah sees the dry ground and rather than rushing out to hug, kiss that dry ground, Noah stays in the ark for almost another two months. Can you imagine opening the window, seeing dry ground and your your first instinct is go to the ground, live on the earth. But rather than going out, Noah closes the window and doesn't make a move. Why? Because God hasn't said to go. Because God did not say, go. Just as Noah would not enter the ark until God said, go. Noah would not exit the ark until God commanded him to, to go. Noah would not budge until God commanded him to do so. Like sprinters who are patiently waiting for, for the gun to go off or for that signal of go. They are anxiously awaiting to run. They are anxiously awaiting to, to, to run as fast as they can to get to the finish line. But they will not move until they hear go. And if they do, they are penalized and ultimately disqualified for running before they have been commanded to do so. Go. Noah would not. Though he was anxious to allow his feet to once again try, uh, touch the dry ground, his bare feet, if you can imagine. That's one of the, the, the most euphoric feelings, if you will, putting your bare feet on nice, beautiful green grass. Noah would not run until God commanded him to run. It's been over a year since the Lord has spoken to Noah. The last time that Noah, that God spoke to Noah, God was commanding Noah to go into the ark. It has now been over a year. But has God been silent during that year? Has God been absent during that year? Imagine floating on this box, in this box, as rain covers the entire world as water covers the entire world you are there alone and you are just floating god has said go in but god has given you no more instructions what now now what i'm here now what should i do i've commanded your your i've obeyed your commands what's the next step and there is no response there is only silence if you will there is only silence as it were Or so it seems. Because Noah is on this ark. But God is not silent. And why is God not silent? Because Noah is God's prophet. Noah knows God's word. So although it may seem like all of the world around him. may be in complete darkness. Noah was secure inside the ark and he hid God's word in his heart and he would not sin against his God. He knew God's word. He proclaimed God's word on the ark. Even to that small congregation of seven, Noah knows God's word. God is not silent. And God is also not absent. For God was preserving Noah. 
The boat has not sunk. The boat has not gone down into the the, the, the ground or to the earth as the waters would assuage. The ark is upheld by God. And so it is with us. That when we feel like we are going through seasons of darkness, seasons of silence, or even seasons of God's absence, God is not silent and God is not absent. And though it may be dark around you, God's word is a lamp to your feet. Noah. Noah knew what it was to walk with God. Noah walked with God. Noah was preserved by God in times of difficulty, in times of of opposition. Noah walked with God. The hundred years of building the ark, enduring opposition from the world, faithfully being a preacher of righteousness, that was training ground for Noah. If if Noah thought the hundred years was going to be difficult, it was only preparing him for what was coming next. The year of being enclosed, encased, engulfed, if you will, upon the ark. Noah's greatest test of entering the ark, leaving the world that once was, would soon be topped by Noah's greater test of holding fast while being a resident in the ark, while being patient and trusting in God while being inside of this ark. Don't think that that which you are experiencing now is meaningless. It is preparation for something more. The growing pains, if you will, they are, they are difficult. They cause you to struggle. But they are not a means to an end. They are preparation. God is making you more like Himself. Or His Son. Noah, I can see the mountaintops. Let's go. God has not commanded us to go. Noah, I can see the hills. Let's go. God has not commanded us to go. Noah, I can see dry ground. But God has not commanded us to exit this ark. Noah did not live upon the unreliable whims of his flesh, but upon the solid rock of God's holy, unshakable word. Why would Noah, after trusting God all this time, After waiting on God all of this time, why would Noah only now, after all of this time, now he's going to start living outside of the rule and reign of God's word? No. He's been walking with God for over a hundred years. Why would he turn and go another path now? What would be the logic and reasoning of that? No. Noah did not enter Hebrews hall of faith by trusting in God only for a season. Noah lived, though imperfectly. Noah lived by faith and would not move until God said go. Brothers and sisters, what is this? What is this? This example of Noah. This is true religion. This is true religion. I wonder what your thoughts are, what your feelings are upon hearing the word religion. For many reasons, 
the world, the word religion has received negative responses. I can remember some time back a rap or a poem or a spoken word that had gone viral, gained much acclaim to an author, and it was called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. You may remember that. Here's an excerpt from that spoken word, if you will. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you that voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian? And just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision. I mean, if religion was so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they ever had a divorce. But in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might practice or might preach grace, but another thing they practice tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. There is more, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. Brothers and sisters, does God hate religion? Let me rephrase that. Does God hate true religion? We must not allow ourselves to be swayed by pop culture in rejecting piety, rejecting biblical terminology, or even rejecting the word religion simply because it's not in step with the culture. Ah, I don't call myself religious. I call myself more spiritual. Oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's my best friend. I ask myself, and I was uh, taken by this poem years ago when it first came out. I was. But now, I ask myself, who is this poet so-called speaking of? What religion is he speaking of? I will tell you who he should be speaking of if he was not. I will tell you who his target audience should have been in this poem if it was not. The target audience should be hypocrites. Those who profess with their mouths but do not believe in their hearts nor practice in their lives. Do you know any person like that? There are those who profess spirituality over biblical, historic, and orthodox Christianity. There are those who reject what God has clearly commanded for that which makes them feel good. There are those who lean on their own understanding and excuse their disobedience of God's word with statement like, statements like, well, God knows my heart. No. God does not hate true religion. God hates man-made religion. For man-made religion is not God-worship, it is man-worship. It is will-worship, if you will. Man-made religion hates God and loves self. Man-made religion interprets God's word any way that they see fit, as long as it goes along with how they feel at that moment in time. God hates so-called 
religion that obscures justice while acting pious. That, that elevates truth over love for neighbor. That abandons me, God's means of salvation for those things that we make up ourselves. That calls people to reject law as if God was not the author of law. The American religion of our day exchanges one evil for another. It rightly calls people out on their prideful hypocrisy of religious, of religiosity, if you will. It rightly sees the error of having truth with no love. It rightly sees the need for true worship of God. And yet it seems, it seems more and more, and it's saddening that people assume the way or path to true religion is to be rid of all law. To be rid of all doctrine. We become the fifth beetle and sing, all we need is love. As if love and true religion could not possibly coexist. How could you go to church Sunday after Sunday? Wait, and evening? Ah, That sounds a little religious to me. How could you become members? Ah, That's why I don't join organized religions. Submit to elders and members? Nah, that seems like a cult to me. How could you sing those boring hymns? Can they be catchier? A drum? Guitar riff? What's up with all the lights in here? You're supposed to shut them all off. Seems like you guys are being religious. Just give me Jesus. What is our Lord's Day gathering based upon? Is it based upon the fact that we all like each other and we just can't wait to see each other again? Obviously not. Is it based upon the fact that we all root for the same professional teams? Obviously not. Is it based upon the fact that we all have the same exact upbringings? Obviously not. Our gatherings are based on something greater. Our gatherings are based upon God's command. God's command for his people. And we obey the commands of God as the people of God. It is based upon what? True religion. What is our membership based upon? God's command. What is our preaching based upon? God's command. What is our hymn singing based upon? God's command. Submission. Prayer. Lord's Supper. Baptism. Evangelism. Discipleship. Tithing. What are all of those things based upon? God's command in true religion. They are not empty rituals. We must not make the mistake of of believing that it is either sincerity of of the heart or it is religion. It's not one or the other. It is both. It It is true religion that is practiced with a sincere heart. We often quote the prophet Samuel and do so ignorantly. To obey is better than sacrifice. But we abuse that passage. We rob that passage of its context. We denounce religious rituals, thinking that God has no use for them. And then we rob God's word of its proper context when we use verses like 1 Samuel 15 as our proof text of why we don't need to do what God has commanded. Why we don't need to do these so-called rituals that we do Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Lord's Supper every Sunday that seems kind of ritualistic. What was Samuel doing? Samuel was rebuking Saul. For what? For Saul's disobedience. Saul disobeyed God and believed that he could make up for his disobedience by 
Let me give a ritualistic offering to God, and then God, God will, 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 God will once again accept me. All will be well if I give to Him a ritualistic offering. It was hypocrisy. It was false religion. False religion that Samuel was rebuking. Not true religion. Samuel, like Noah, was practicing true religion. It was the perfect blend of theology and doxology. It's not enough to say you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but unlike Noah, you go when you want to go. You hear that? It's not enough to say, yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you do what you want to do. You go when you want to go. It's not enough to say that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but, but you, you, you make up your own rules as you see fit. In Luke 11, a woman moved by the teachings of Jesus shouted out, blessed is the woman who bore you. The Lord Jesus Christ shouted back, blessed rather are those who hear God's word and keep it. That's true religion. True religion waits until God says go. And the primary way that we show our devotion to God, our true heartfelt religion to God, is by obeying his commands. James 127, religion that is pure, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, this is true religion. Brothers and sisters, where did James get this idea of true religion from? He's quoting Leviticus and Exodus. He's quoting the law. And saying this is true religion. This is true religion. Obey God's commands. Wait till he says go. Number two. The sweet aroma. Of true religion. The sweet aroma of true religion. Genesis chapter 8, verse 16 to 22. <clears throat> Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his wives, sons, wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Neither again, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed, time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The floodwaters have subsided. The land is dry. The Lord has commanded Noah now to exit the ark. The day that Noah stepped off the ark was the, the dawning of a, a new day in a new world. And is the, the theme of recreation with its language of all flesh, birds, animals, creeping things, be fruitful and multiply. It is that language that is pointing us back to the first creation. 
and gives us the idea that this is a new creation. But let us be clear. This was nothing like the first creation. Although it pointed back to the first creation and points forward to the consummation, Noah did not look upon the world, the new world, and see what Adam saw when he was first created. You got that? What Noah sees is not what Adam saw. What we will see in the future will be better than what Adam saw. But but why is this not what Adam saw? The world was no longer pristine. As it, had, as it was when it initially came from the hand of God. The physical changes of the world were drastic. It is believed that the great flood is what caused the separation of the continents. You ever look at the world map and see the continents as they are separated? If you ever have a chance, in your eyes, piece those puzzles together and you will see These look like they were once one. What has happened? God, through the flood, has divided the world. The oceans were now more vast and the waters were now more prevalent on the earth than they had ever been before. Because of the floodwaters, the mountain ranges were now more treacherous. The waters of the flood caused sharp cuts in the mountains to where now mountains would be dangerous. It is believed that prior to the flood, there was a type of vapor canopy over the entire earth that protected man from the harmful natural elements of creation. This being one of the reasons why human beings lived so long and the removal of this vapor canopy being the reason why human beings stopped living so long after the flood. It is also believed that at this time, there were drastic changes in the earth's atmosphere, rapid climate change, which caused the beginning of the Ice Age. Do you believe the Ice Age took place four million years ago? Then you don't believe the Bible. We believe in a young earth. And because we believe in a young earth, we don't believe the Ice Age was two million years ago when there were only woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. It was not Ice Age of the movie. It was something completely different. This was not a return to Eden. It was a new world, but it was still cursed because of the sin of Adam. Man did not return to his innocence or moral integrity that he was once created in. His heart remained equally wicked. This new world is not a better world than the first. It is worse. And as Noah exits the ark, let us take notice of what he does. He sees this world. It is, it is a wasteland now. Noah, verse 20, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. As this man of faith exits the ark after over a year and a few months, the first act of this prophet, priest, and king of the new creation is to build, to build, to build an altar. To build a place of worship. To build a place to sacrifice to God with clean animals. The clean animals that he had preserved for the time that he would exit the ark. This was the command of God in Genesis chapter 7. When God commanded Noah to take seven pairs of every clean animal. Noah understood this to be God's command. 
these animals, if you read uh, Leviticus chapter 11, you will see what are clean animals and what are unclean animals. But Noah is offering these animals and they were to be preserved for the time that he would exit the ark and sacrifice the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, listen closely in closing. There are two things that are happening here. First, Noah is offering a sacrifice in absolute gratitude to the Lord for graciously rescuing him and his family from the waters of judgment. This is true worship. This is true religion. God, true religion, true worship is always filled with absolute gratitude to God. True worship, true religion always gives God glory for the grace or unmerited favor that God shows under no obligation to sinful creatures. This is not merely a singing of a song while driving in your car to work. If that's our idea of true gratitude, then we are ignorant of what true gratitude really is. We no longer are to bring uh, to God a spotless lamb for our worship. We are no longer to bring to God a, a spotless lamb for our to show our gratitude. For Christ is our spotless lamb, once offered once and for all. But we do bring, we do bring to God our bodies. And they are to be living sacrifices to God. We are to offer, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship, our reasonable act of worship. The Apostle Paul appeals to the mercy of God displayed in our election, our regeneration, our vocation, as our call to live lives of holiness and in holy commitment to God. Offer your bodies. Offer the whole of yourself to God in worship. This is true worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. Give yourselves. This is the arena. This is in the arena of public worship. But it is not absent of true heartfelt devotion. What do I mean by that? Offering up your bodies is in the arena of when we come to gather to worship. Offer your bodies. When you leave this place and live your life outside of this place, offer your bodies. And both are to be done, not absent of devotion in your heart, but full of devotion in your heart. This is true religion. This is true worship. John Gill says, this is body and soul. This is the faculties of mind and action with all readiness and all willingness to offer our whole service, our whole conversation, both internal and external to God. Don't you want to live like that? We bring to God that which is living, not not that which is dead, that which is living to Christ. We have been given life and we are no longer dead. And I fear that we often enter this place as if we were still dead. We often come into this place uh, not offering up the, the an offering of thanksgiving or with thanksgiving in our hearts, but hoping. We come into this place out of duty often. Not out of thanksgiving. And, and we are waiting for some pastor, one of the elders, to maybe say something that would spark thanksgiving. You are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Not wait for us to say something that will make you say, yeah, you know what, I should be more thankful. Lack of desire for God is a lack of remembering that you were rescued from the waters of judgment. 
Lack of, of offering your, your body whole to God is, is lack of remembering you've been shown grace when God was under no obligation to do so. And we, we, we barely walk into this place. Thank God we are here, but we barely make it if we do at all. We, we are offering up to God dead sacrifices. Here's what I got left. We're offering up to God dead worship. We, we are barely singing when songs are, be, are being sung. Weren't you rescued? Weren't you saved? Then why won't we sing like it? Why do we act like we haven't? This is all duty for us. It's become religion. And it's not because of a lack of good teaching. It's a lack of bad students. Or a lack of good students. No one could accuse this pulpit of not preaching gospel. Have you lost your sense of gratitude? What's keeping you right now? How are you still taking one step after another? What's doing it for you? God, by his grace, but are you barely holding on? Are you running? Are you running? Are you looking forward to building altars in your homes where you say to your homes and to your families, in this place we shall worship God? That's the first act of duty when Noah steps off the ark. This world, the first act here in this world will be we will worship God. Why? Can you imagine? Why, why Noah, as we're stepping off of the ark? Why are we doing this, Noah? Let's go find some fruit, Noah. Stepping off of the ark. What is more reasonable to do than as you step off of the ark to fall down on your face and worship God? We've been rescued. What is the most reasonable thing for us to do right now? Worship God. We've been brought from death to life by the power of the gospel. And he bids us obey my commands. And we often say, yeah, but they're just not that entertaining. God calls us to fellowship with him at his table, but we would, we would rather stay home and fellowship with our toys and trinkets. How do I know that? Our Lord's Day evening services are sparse. Do you see any value in fellowshipping with the Lord at his table? Or is the Warriors game more important? I'm speaking of me. Huh? Do you see any value? It's not the act that makes it religious. It's cold hearts that make it religious. We must confess that we are far less grateful than we ought to be. That we are not. And, and, and confess it. Don't get, offend, don't get offended. Don't get defensive. Confess it. I am not as grateful as I need to be. I am not as, as grateful as I should be. I am not offering up my body like I know. I'm, I have been offering up a dead sacrifice. Lord, help me to offer up to you living sacrifices. This is not the moment for you to be offended. It's the moment for you to confess and repent. What is the evidence of us offering up our bodies? Is it not heartfelt obedience? Yes. This is not hypocritical ritual. It is heartfelt religion. 
It's being attentive when God's word is going forth as if you are hanging on to every single word. It's not looking through and saying, let me see how I can refute everything he's saying right now. That's not worship. It is when you are coming in, you are loving your neighbors here. You are looking forward to saints who are your true brothers, who are your true sisters and saying, good to see you. I'll be seeing you for the rest of eternity. And I can't wait for that. But since it's already begun, let's start loving each other now. It is praying for saints. It is also praying for the sinner. It is being patient and suffering. Gathering when the saints gather. Singing with hearts of praise. Offer your bodies. Holy and completely to God. This is our grateful and reasonable act of worship to God. For great things he has done as the hymn says. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Do we understand what we're singing? When I was training in martial arts, one of the things that I learned was stay humble. Stay grateful. Be a white belt forever. Even though you progress, act like you still don't know anything and that you are completely dependent upon your teacher. The Apostle Paul has a version of that. I have not arrived. I have not arrived. Have you? Have you arrived? We used to say that a lot growing up when I was in the charismatic church. I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. There's some things that we can't forget that were actually true back there. No, I haven't arrived. And I must remain humble and completely and wholly dependent upon God. Noah was grateful, offered a sacrifice and gratitude, but there's something else going on here as well. In Noah's sacrifice, we are given a foreshadow of something that scripture will reveal to us in greater detail as revelation progresses. Noah builds an altar. The word build is the same word used in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain uh, builds a city. And in Genesis chapter 11, when the people build the Tower of Babel. Meaning this, this is no small fire pit in our mom and dad's backyard. This is the beginning of the building of a city whose God is the Lord. It is said that there is a city named Theanamon, meaning we are eight. And it is said that it was established by Noah. And this building of the altar was the first foundation laid upon that city. At the footsteps of Mount Ararat, Noah obediently offers clean animals to offer as a sacrifice to worship God. Now we must ask, what's the purpose of sacrifices? We see these sacrifices, these offerings were prescribed by God. God commanded that Noah offer these animals, that they would be acceptable uh, offerings of worship to God. But these sacrifices were not only meant for worship. Noah is making an offering in obedient worship to God. But Noah is performing the task of a priest. 
Noah's prophet, priest, and king, right? When we look at the responsibilities of the Levitical priest in Leviticus, we see that there are they are offering many sacrifices. And the first of those sacrifices is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a total burning, total consumption or destruction of an animal. For what? To atone for sin. To reconcile a right relationship between God and man through this sacrifice. The smoke of the burnt offering ascended. Literally went up. And as it went up, it was a pleasing aroma. The Bible uses, again, anthropomorphic language. It was a pleasing aroma to God. Why? Because that is exactly what God had commanded him to do. It was pleasing because God commanded it and Noah obeyed it. Noah is performing the work of a priest in doing what? Making an offering. Listen, for who? For the world. You see that? Noah is acting as priest. Priests give offerings. Noah is offering a spotless lamb or an acceptable clean animal before God. Who is the sacrifice for? It is for the people. What is the result? It is to bring reconciliation between God and man. Satisfying God's wrath and justice. The Bible says in verse 27, in closing, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike Ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. How is the combusting, the aroma of combusting animals' flesh, how is that pleasing in any kind of way? You ever smelled an animal that's completely burning, all, all things that are burning? It doesn't smell very good. I'm Filipino. We've roasted a lot of pigs in our day. It doesn't smell very sweet. When Noah offered that which God commanded, he made atonement. Not just for himself. Not just for his family, but for the entire world. Noah, acting in the priestly role, just as the, as the Levitical priest did, Noah is standing as a mediator on behalf of the world. Noah offers a sacrifice on behalf of the world in order to satisfy the justice of God. And when God smells... The aroma. See that? There is a sacrifice offered. God is pleased. Pleasing aroma. God is pleased by that, by that sacrifice. And then God makes a promise. When Noah obediently commands, obeys God's command, God promises to preserve the world. Brothers and sisters, we could discuss how this points back to the sacrifice made in Eden or points forward to Moses. But ultimately, it points to Christ. And as I'm saying this, hopefully you're seeing that automatically. Christ who offers not a lamb, but his very own body for the sins of the world on the cross. For all who would place their faith in him would be saved from the wrath of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, meaning they would not satisfy God. The sacrifice of an animal would not satisfy God, but a body, he says, 
you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure, meaning they would not ultimately satisfy. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And verse 9, he does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that we, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. The sacrifices of, bo- of goats and, and bulls and lambs were never meant to be a means to an end. They were meant to point to the fact that there must be something better. There must be something better. There must be a better way. Year after year, these sacrifices were offered and and they were meant to point to the one who would ultimately be the sacrifice once and for all. And that which Noah offers on the altar points us to the true and better prophet, the true and better king, the true and eternal priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Noah was a mediator, a go-between between God and man. So Christ is the mediator, the true and better mediator for us. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Brothers and sisters, if this does not cause you to look to Christ, if this does not cause you to see Christ in this offering, in this accepting of the offering, and in this promise of preservation, this does not cause you to see Christ and you don't have eyes to see. Noah practiced true religion. He worshiped God in gratitude and offered up an acceptable sacrifice on behalf of the old, of, of the whole world. Christ obeyed God completely, worshiped God with all of his life, offered up his life as a sacrifice on behalf of those who will place their faith in him. Noah was a type of Christ. And this offering is typological of that which was fulfilled in Christ. God will make a covenant with Noah because of this sacrifice. And it will benefit the entire world. For the world will be preserved because of Noah's obedience and sacrifice. Let's pray.